Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. This is finally the last of the series on Wittgenstein's Tractatus. Today we get to that strange ending which suggests that we should be quiet about things that we cannot say. What does Wittgenstein mean by this and how does it relate to everything from talking about God to talking about science? Jill and I will discuss this and more in this podcast. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a ministry of Tactical Faith. Check out tacticalfaith.com for links to our other podcasts and ministries. If there is a topic you would like Joel and I to talk about or have any other comments and so on and so forth, email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com or you can tweet us at Toward Wisdom. Enjoy. Welcome back to Wondering Toward Wisdom. Today we are going to finish the Tractatus, maybe have a little time to discuss some of the elements related to it. We are going to start at 6.5 if you are following along in the Tractatus, which we strongly recommend against. Yes. But if you have one or if you have access to one online, which there probably is one online, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, you could find it online. We are at 6.5, and so Joel is going to lead us through this initial discussion of skepticism, how it relates to some of these issues, all the way to Proposition 7, at which point we will be quiet. And then we'll discuss a little bit about what it's about. So anyway, Joel, please guide us through this. Okay. So if you remember Proposition 6, this is our third podcast that we've been touching on episode or on, on proposition six it's it's kind of the you know wrap-up summary application kind of um proposition we've talked about some of the other ones he's got this last one 6.5 we're going to talk through 6.5 then we'll get to seven should be quick ish although there's a lot of good stuff here so 6.5 says for an answer which cannot be expressed the question two cannot be expressed the riddle does not exist. If a question can be put at all, then it can also be answered. So this is his you know, kind of sub-point, kind of point of application. And then what follows is going to be explaining the application, I guess you could say. So his 6.51, he, he talks about skepticism. And he says, skepticism is not irrefutable, but palpably senseless. If it would, uh, if it would doubt where a question cannot be asked, so he's, you know, remember he's saying that there's answers. If you can ask the question, you can give an answer. If you can, if there's an answer, there must be a question. You can almost say, um, and so skepticism. He says skepticism on things when where it's uh, where you know where where you can doubt that uh, it, it, it just doesn't make sense. You know, so these, these big questions being, um, you know, that, that might not uh, actually be questions maybe. Um, Cause that's, that's one possible interpretation of six, five is you could say, Oh, so he's saying that this question that's being asked, isn't actually being asked. And so it's it's a nonsensical question. It just looks like it makes sense, and that's why we think there's an answer. And but he's he's saying something different. I think I think he's he's getting he's pushing us to say maybe the answer isn't something that we can say, but maybe it's something we have to point to. That that distinction we keep coming back that say show distinction. Um, 
which is not a nice, clean distinction as we've discussed, but the sense of um, your answer can be there even if it's not necessarily clear. Because uh, he goes on in 6.51 to say, for doubt can only exist where there's a question, a question only where there's answer, and this is only where something can be said. So when we're talking about doubt, we're talking about doubt can only re- – I mean, it seems with the connection he's making here, doubt only exists where things can be said. Does that mean where things can be shown, there can be no doubt? I think what he would say is that – it's something different than the doubt that uh, comes from a question or that is, is where what can be said. So it a lot of discussion about faith in Christianity, I'm seeing more and more discussion of connecting faith with trust. And um, so the doubt that would be shown or that would be relating to the the show, would be more of a lack of trust rather than a, I don't think that's true. When we're talking about things that can be said, the doubt is saying, I don't know if that's true. When we're talking about things that can be shown, I think it's more along the lines of, I don't know if I trust that, or I don't know if I trust what you're showing me. Um, right. And because trust, when you're, yeah. Okay. So yeah, because, and, and trust is a kind of thing that can't be proven, like prove, prove that you're trustworthy is a different sort of thing than, you know, prove that, I don't know, some sort of empirical data with science, right? Right. And and, and w- when we were talking about showing, we've talked about the role of the evaluative outlook in understanding what's being shown. And so when someone shows you something, they're showing it to you through an evaluative outlook. When you doubt what's being shown, you are likely doubting the evaluative outlook. You're not trusting the their evaluative outlook, whereas when it's something that's said, you're you're questioning whether it's it's actually true. So, do you think that? And this is, I mean, this is the import import of what he's saying, right? Is that oftentimes when we are showing something and doubting an evaluative outlook, we demand proof in something that can be said in reference to something that can be shown, and right. this is why there's a ships passing in the night. <laughs> sort of issue going on here where, because you see this a lot in, um, in, in, I feel like there's a lot of discussions, uh, a lot of debates between apologists and atheists or whatever, where there's a demand for a kind of evidence. They're expressing a doubt about something that can be said, but it's in reference to something like an evaluative outlook. And so this would be like, if we're talking about the happy, the happy person and the, and the, the unhappy person, how they inhabit different worlds, it would be sort of like the happy, the unhappy person uh, actually, there's somebody, uh, Peeper talks about this with optimists, that there's a kind of, how do I say there's a kind of arrogance of the optimist or the pessimist where they're declaring that other people should be, should see the world the way they, they see it. And then you make an argument saying, prove to me that I, that the, that I should be happy, but you're asking to be put into a different world and the evidence can't stack up. You can stack up evidence all day and it's never sufficient to prove that you should be happy. In fact, try to convince someone who's unhappy that they should be happy. It doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work. The more you say, the the more angry they're probably going to get, unless they're already on the precipice of shifting into the world of happiness. Then they may like laugh and come along with you. You can do it with small children sometimes, uh, but not with adults because 
we're pretty steady in our value of outlooks. So I guess there's an element, there's a question here, or there's a there's a concern here with the way that we do apologetics insofar as if evaluative outlooks that give shape to the world are essential to understanding. That is to believe in God is not merely to believe that there's another thing in the world, but there is in fact one who gives shape to the world. Then doubt about God's existence is not something that you can defeat through stacking up scientific evidence or any other kind of philosophical said evidence in the way that he's talking about what can be said. And similarly, you can't prove the existence of God by stacking up that kind of evidence. It, 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 it's more going to be along the line. Like it, it, I hesitate to say it this way, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> you can't it, proving on, on, on these kinds of discussions, it's not a matter of the facts because the facts can be stacked up and you can actually agree on the facts, but the difference is that evaluative outlook that you're coming at the, the facts, you know, through, you're coming through that evaluative outlook to the facts to where the, the value of the facts are going to be hand, handled differently by each side. And you're going to come to different conclusions because the evaluative outlook through which you're understanding the world is just different. Um, go ahead. Okay. I, 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 I want to ask you a question about this, even though I'm fearful of, I'm because I'm afraid I'm going to forget it later on. Maybe I can write it down and I'll, let, let's finish. And I'll, and I'm going to ask you about this. Okay. Uh, I'm going to write a note to myself so I don't forget, but, uh, Okay. And it may not be. It may not be relevant. It may be other more other important things to cover. So, okay, sorry. Continue. So six Please. five two. This is this is a this is key. This these these next three propositions. Uh, six five two. We feel that even if all possible scientific questions be answered, the problems of life have still not been touched at all. Of course, there is then no question left, and just this is the answer. Before I explain that, let us let me go, give 6521 and 6522. That helps explain it a little more. Uh, the 6521. The solution of the problem of life is seen in the vanishing of this problem. Is not this the reason why men to whom after long doubting the sense of life became clear could not then say wherein this sense consisted? 6522. There is indeed the inexpressible. This shows itself. It is the mystical. So the problems of life are not the problems of science. Problems of science that when he says the problems or the scientific, all possible scientific questions, he's talking about the things that can be said, the things that, that um, you know, we can, we can say the meaning of, as opposed to showing the meaning of, right? He, does, he doesn't say uh, all all present day scientific questions. He says all possible scientific questions, which means he's saying whatever questions we ask in the future, it simply cannot get there because of right. the nature of the question itself, or the way that because it's a said thing. Yeah, yeah, and so the. And he says the solution of the problem of life is seen in the vanishing of this problem. And once we understand 
the difference between questions of or the problems of life versus the scientific question, it makes sense why we're not going to be able to say the answers to the problem of life. And, and you know, you think about it, and, and I mean, he's pointing to, to someone has a dramatic change in their life, something huge happens that they they figure out why they've been unhappy or they find sudden happiness or whatever and they might be able to tell you but you're like okay like i'm not sure that necessarily you know when 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 someone tells you you know this happened and everything changed and for you you're like well mate I don't think that necessarily would have caused that for me, but it did obviously did for you and something happened and I, I might not be able to explain it, but you know that something happened and you know what it is. And, but unless I know you well enough that I can get inside your head and, and kind of get us or, or try to get inside your head and try to get a sense of, of, of how this has transformed the way you see the world, it's going to kind of seem nonsensical to me. Yeah, I just I just recently taught uh, part of Augustine's Confessions to a class, and I talked about the famous scene where he converts, which is famous. But if you look at it in one way, he doesn't say anything at all meaningful. So he's having a struggle. He's sitting in a garden. He hears some kid in the distance say, take up and read. He takes that as a call from God, picks up the Bible, reads a passage out of Romans where it says, not in drunkenness, intoxication, so on and so forth. He's converted. What? I've read that passage lots of times. Didn't work that way for me. Right. You, you know what I mean? Like, like you could imagine someone saying, reading that passage out of Romans where it says you shouldn't live a life of drunkenness, but clothe yourself with Christ. That doesn't make someone a Christian. So what's he saying? Well, he's not saying anything. Like in a way he's not, what he's saying isn't what, isn't what he's saying. He's trying to. He's showing us what this works. Yeah, he's showing us. He's trying to show, show us something. And if you're and if you're looking, I feel like, and this is, this, I got this from you, I believe, where instead of years ago when you're talking about this, that when we read Augustine's words and try to, I don't know, turn it into a twelve step program or something. Not that I have a problem with twelve step programs. Just a lot of steps. I like to keep my my steps in the single digits. But when we when we try to break it down to, I don't know, a certain set of steps that you go through to become saved or whatever, I feel like we're, we are looking at what is said in the same way that a child looks at the finger pointing. I think this is straight directly from Wittgenstein's investigations, right? Where the child looks at, when you point to something, the child looks at the finger, but you're trying to get the child to look at the thing you're pointing to. And Augustine's words are the pointing. If we obsess about his words, instead of looking at what they're pointing at, we're missing the, well, the point, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, we, instead of treating, well, let me hit pause on that because we're going to get to, to a perfect example of what you just said. Wittgenstein's going to put his cards on the table and say, this is what I've been doing the whole time. If you, if you think that, that this is the, the end game, you've missed the point, hmm. but we have to say something else first. All right. Where we have to show something else first. Um, but the, the, the Wittgenstein's right here, he's saying, if you want to understand problems of life, look to meaning that can be shown, not meaning that can be said. 
Okay, so let me let me let me interrupt just one second. So when I first read this, I'm trying I'm trying to read this from the perspective of someone who's a little more of a uh, logical positivist bent or a contemporary sort of um, how do I put it? one who believes that empirical data is the only data we should ever care about. Which I mean, empirical information is the only thing that our minds should be concerned with because it works and it makes good stuff. If I read this, we feel that even if all possible scientific questions can be answered, the problems of life still have not been touched at all. Of course, there is then no question left, and just this is the answer. That means there is no problem with life. We should ignore it and just continue on with scientific endeavors. That's what I might read. But then he goes on. Right. Like, so the solution to the problem of life is seen in the vanishing of this problem. Yeah, the solution to life is that you ignore the problem. No, the solution of life has something to do with ceasing to believe that it can be said so the the solution is is in a way yes but but we remember we have to remember he's using said in a very specific sense yes that, so i guess what i'm saying is that it can be de- let's use the word demonstrated maybe because that that's a word that people are always using it's scientifically or phil- or logically demonstrated so if i if I will begin to understand something about the meaning of life if I stop obsessing with demonstration. Is that like, is he, is he, is, let me put it this way. I want to put it in sufficient necessary condition terms. Is that a sufficient condition to come to an understanding of the, of some sort of solution to the problem of life? Is it a necessary condition? Is it sufficient and necessary? Or am I just asking the wrong question? I think I think Wittgenstein is undermining the logical positivists before they even take off, because they they are say they are saying literally that that what can be said is all that matters, and so the only thing we should focus on is what is said, and all the other things are societal constructions at best um and they might serve some sort of purpose for that but they don't actually serve a a meaningful purpose um and so what he's saying is the problems of life are not going to be the scientific questions they're you know they're you know questions of of love questions of meaning and purpose all these kinds of things don't fit well into the scientific questions, obviously. Um, you know, even, even as our neuroscience has improved over the last hundred years since this text has come out, it's even more that, yeah, we might be able to point to, yeah, when, when we experience this emotion, the brain does this kind of thing or secretes this kind of chemical or, you know, but we still don't understand what's actually going on. It, 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 there's nothing that's, that, points to it being a mechanistic uh kind of thing there's yeah we we see correlation right but that doesn't tell us so for example uh to explain uh human love in terms of reproductive pressure reproductive or evolutionary pressures i think most of us do not find that satisfying no and uh Mm -hmm. It could be that we're all, it could be that we're 
we've just been very well deceived by evolution. But it doesn't make any difference. We'll we will never accept that that's the case. We simply won't accept it. Um, which suggests that we do have another question that needs to that that we are that we can't stop trying to answer. Maybe not a question isn't the right isn't the right way to put it because that suggests something. I've said. There's there's a problem there. Um, I mean, no matter it, how you try to explain it away, the problem remains and it won't go away. Yeah, and I I mean, thankfully there's a new. Well, you know, fourth one coming out, so it's this is no longer a completely dated reference. But the Matrix movies do a good job of of getting at this. Um, we'll see if the fourth one does, you know, continues in that vein when it comes out. I guess next month, as as of the time we're recording this. But um, yeah, the 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 you know the machines can't uh, you know defeat meaning and purpose and love as much as they try um or even something a movie like the adjustment bureau which is another dated reference at this point yeah. but still still a good a good movie that wrestles with some of these kinds a of better things. reference for that which tries to undermine love and human meaning would be social media oh yeah but that's not a movie no okay anyway but so let's keep getting through I, I, travis questioned me at the beginning if we were actually going to finish this today and i said yes we will so i'm going to, to be <laughs> yeah, proven correct. You make it happen All right. <laughs> uh six five three the right method of philosophy would be this to say nothing except what can be said that is the propositions of natural science that is something that has nothing to do with philosophy and then always, when someone else wished to say something metaphysical, to demonstrate to him that he had given no meaning to certain signs in his propositions. This method would be unsatisfying to the other. He would not have the feeling that we were teaching him philosophy, but it would be the only strictly correct method. What he's saying is, if this is the path we're going down, okay. We're not going to say much. It's not going to feel like we're doing anything worthwhile. We're definitely not going to be approaching questions of wisdom or the problems of life. But if we're committed to making philosophy this way, great. And we 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 present to you modern academic philosophy. In more in two that is too <laughs> close to truth. Yeah, it's a little too close to home there, Wittgenstein. Um. A bit of a prophet, um, and and you know it, it's being nine years out of grad school and um, out of the profession. I feel like I can say, I feel like the profession wants wants to be that way, but when it's shown that it can't be that way, it makes the slightest adjustment to 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 address that particular objection that, that has shown that it can't be that way. And then it continues on its path instead of saying, Oh, maybe we need to rethink this whole thing. Maybe we need to go a new approach, new approach. And to be fair, there are philosophers out there in academia who are, who do not exemplify this, who are trying to get at the questions of wisdom, the questions of meaning and purpose. Um, and, and those philosophers i i applaud i uh 
envy that they have jobs. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that they get to teach this stuff to students because this is, this is what made me interested in philosophy. This is what has driven philosophy for, for more than 2000 years. And um, I, I, there's a um, book by Esther Lightcap Meek, where she's criticizing a lot of analytic philosophy. And then she has a footnote that says, you know, there are exceptions. And then she goes through the list and I'm like, oh, it's all my favorite philosophers there. That's, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Well, and, and on the, and, and to be fair, I don't think what Wittgenstein is saying is that, I don't even, not even what we're saying is that this, this other stuff that philosophy does is unimportant. No. Like what, what academic philosophy is doing now with you know philosophy of science, uh, philosophy of mind, all, all the kinds of uh, how do I put it? It sounds negative, but the nitpickiness that we're that philosophy does, I think, is essential. It, it's working as kind of a referee in the background in a lot of situations, in ethics, in uh, in in the way that that different sciences use their language and so on and so forth. That's that's important stuff for philosophy, but it's not the heart and soul of it. It's like we've lost the soul. And we've maintained the nitpickiness. Uh, the nitpickiness is important. The care, I mean, let's maybe say the carefulness yeah. of it is is essential. But if it doesn't have its heart, it just becomes, we're saying a bunch of stuff. That what human life is about has been lost. We're just, we're moving around the furniture on the, I would say on the Titanic, but it's not sinking. It's just dead. I don't know. We're putting makeup on the corpse or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. We're, I mean, these getting clear on our definitions and clear by what we mean when we say certain words in philosophy is really important, but it's important when it's in service to bigger questions. And, and I think part of the frustration is when we start to get into things that can only be shown, this desire to get clear on definitions is. I mean, Wittgenstein is showing the showing us that ultimately it's a futile task. No, I mean it's it's helpful in that it it might do a you know help us get a little closer and help us get a little more clear, but it's not going to give us the complete answer. It can only um, help us be a little help us communicate it a little more clearly because everyone understands what's being said, especially in situations where it's hard to show if we can use, you know, we, we use words to show a lot of things. And so if it's helping us be more precise in the words we use to show more clearly, that's great. But it feels like too much of it has gotten hung up in the being more clear for the sake of clarity as opposed to being more clear for the sake of, of what we're trying to show. Which leads us to 654, our last proposition before in, in, in Proposition 6. And he says, My propositions are elucidatory in this way. He who understands me finally recognizes them as senseless when he has climbed out through them, on them, over them. He must, so to speak, throw away the ladder after he has climbed up on it. He must surmount these propositions. Then he sees the world rightly. Wittgenstein is saying, this book, everything you've read, if you understand it correctly, 
it has taken you to a certain place, to a certain viewpoint that you realize these propositions in and of themselves are senseless. That is, they're not, they're not saying anything. They're not saying anything scientific. They're, they're pointing us to the problems of how to address the problems of life, and that is by ignoring everything that's been said. Not ignoring everything that's been said, but rec- recognizing the utility of what has been said and helping you get to this viewpoint and then ignoring what has, and then you throw it away because if you hold on to it too tightly, if you're more focused on the ladder than on where the ladder has taken you, you're going to miss seeing what you need to see. You're looking at the finger, not looking at where it's pointing. Yeah. In other words, now this isn't the last proposition in the entire book. This is the second to last proposition in the entire book. And in a way, what Wittgenstein is writing here is JKLOL. Not exactly though. Not exactly. That's not really what he's doing. Yeah. I mean I mean in a way he is though. He's saying he's saying, "Okay, you've gotten to this point. You, you know, these pro- I think it's important to note he's talking about problems of life. As he's leading up to this, he's criticized the method of philosophy previously. Before that, he criti- he he tells us to, about the problems of life. Before that, he talks about skepticism, and and all of this is under the the heading of six five, which says the riddle does not exist. He's he's Wittgenstein was very very intentional in the way he structured, the way he did his notation on this. And so what he is is doing here, I believe, is he's saying we're we can't get caught up in these in trying to push everything into what can be said. I'm going to use language and you're going to think that I'm saying something when really this whole book is a matter of showing you something. So let me do something that I always do and say, didn't Plato already say this? Um, so, and, but the reason why I say that is so in Plato's Republic, the divided line example, uh, it's four sections, but the top two sections are the intelligible sections. That is a part that you can use your brain to understand stuff, your mind. And there's dianoia, which is usually translated knowledge or something like that. Thought. Actually, thought maybe is probably a better way to say it. And then there's the the highest, which is uh, noesis, and usually is translated understanding. And he talks about how dianoia or thought seems to contain propositions. Understanding uses these. To reach understanding, you use the propositions like stepping stones from which you can leap into understanding. The idea being that they don't take you all the way there. It's almost like they're a ladder, but the ladder doesn't quite reach to the top. You have to make a little bit of a jump. As if if you stack the propositions up, they never quite get you there. It's never quite enough. The pro- having all the propositions doesn't get you into the realm of understanding. And I think there's a lot of, maybe a lot of lack of clarity about what this understanding is, but it strikes me that this it sounds very much like what Wittgenstein is saying here, that the ladder, you can climb up the ladder, but the ladder itself is senseless. You realize you've 
you've made a leap in a way. Maybe that's not the right right way to put it. But it feel it feels similar. Let's put it that way. And I know well, you're not a Plato, you're not a Plato expert, and I'm not a Wittgenstein expert. So what are, you know? I I mean I I I think this is. I mean I don't think Plato is at is at odds with Wittgenstein on this. I mean we, we could maybe discuss nuance, you know, particular nuances, but ultimately I think, I mean the if you haven't figured it out by now, audience. The philosophers that Travis and I care about are the ones that are going to ultimately have something to do where we where that idea of a valuative outlook is at work in their ideas. And the importance of seeing the world rightly, of of having the right perspective. They're they're all on the same team in a way. Um right. and, but they're and, I mean it's clear that Wittgenstein is doing this in a far more He's doing it in a in a far in a different way than Plato's doing it, yeah. And he's and he's presenting it in a way that I think a lot of people might find a lot a lot because Plato didn't have like propositional logic didn't exist back then. No, I'm, or you could say it existed, but only in the abstract. Nobody discovered it yet. So depending on how I talk about it, but uh, but what what Wittgenstein is doing with philosophy of language, the nature of logic, and so on and so forth is not in Plato's wheelhouse at that point. Right. Plato is doing it in a far different way, a lot more imagery. And so in many ways, Wittgenstein, if if they are doing the same thing or talking about the same thing, which I think they probably I think they are, they're clear Wittgenstein is clearly giving giving us a bunch of content that proves what Plato is gesturing at. Even though proves may not be the right word, but he's doing something more detailed. Or or at the very least, um, He's pointing to a turn of the 20th century audience. He's pointing in a way that they might get it, but they didn't really get it since we got the logical <laughs> like positives out of it. Um, <laughs> right. Just kind of like we got the Neoplatonists. Um, but right. the, the there's a sense in which they're saying a similar thing to a different audience, and so they're trying because they're trying to help their audience see a certain thing, they're going to say it differently because they have a different audience. Um, you know, Plato was speaking to, I mean, largely the educated of, of, of Athens, but I mean, he was, he was, he was communicating in dialogues as opposed to, you know, Wittgenstein, who's clearly writing to a small subset of, of, of academics in at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, you know, and, and, and also, a a, a to, to European, uh, academics in particular who had just gone through world war one, um, which is also a component that we could bring out more in, in as to what this has to do with it or what it has to do with it. But ultimately, I mean, he, he says it so shows it so clearly then he sees the world rightly there is a way to see the world that's not about what's said but what's shown and interesting he says rightly like so so i need to ask you this maybe or maybe this is what he's suggesting. So when he talks about the world of the happy man, the world of the unhappy man, they're actually living different worlds. 
there's is he saying that you're seeing the world rightly in the in the in the sense that you recognize that evaluative outlooks play a role, or is he saying you see the world rightly in the sense that you actually are picking us like is the world of the happy man the right world? You know what I'm saying? Or is he just saying in a more in a broader sense, you're recognizing that evaluative outlooks play a function in how you see the world? Do you do you understand my problem? Yeah, I'm not, I'm, yeah, I don't think yeah. I'm communicating, communicating it well. But. So so I, I think you're you're saying is is seeing the world rightly, seeing that the happy man and the the sad man live in different worlds, or is seeing the world rightly picking one of the two? Yes, that's what I'm asking. That's better said. Um, I think Wittgenstein. So Wittgenstein was never someone who modesty uh, applied the word modest applied <laughs> right. to. So I don't. I think he would be inclined to say that one of them is right but i'm not sure he'd be ready to pick the side if that makes sense um and 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 part of that is based on on other writings of his um where he i think he thinks there is a right way to see the world but it's also very clear in other writings of his that he is trying to figure out what that way is um, so y- yes, the, the, there, there's, th- this is at, at the very least a necessary step to be able to see the world rightly is to realize that, that, um, meaning ha- there is meaning that can only be shown and that there, uh, the way you see the world is an important part of how you understand the world all right all that's of that, helpful all of that leads to our last proposition proposition seven whereof one cannot speak thereof one must be silent the end a, the end that's <laughs> and uh what what he's doing is he's saying if it, if it's something that can be shown, where meaning can only be shown, don't try to don't try to make it scientific. Don't try and make it something that can be said. Um, you know, I I think you know we mentioned this a little earlier with apologetics, trying to. You know, when people bring up you know these scientific objections, it, it's kind of a you're trying to say something. You know, and when when Christians try to respond in the same way it's 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 uh senseless at least on on in this framework because Wittgenstein's saying it's meaning that has to be shown um now it's also worth saying showing whatever um that you can use the same phrase the same words and when you articulate the the, the those words those words can be saying meaning or they can be showing meaning. And I, I think it's important to be aware of which one you're, you're trying to do because that's going to 
um, to be very important in in uh, kind of what's your goal? What what are you going for? Um, where are you trying to lead a conversation or lead a discussion? Um, if you think you're saying something, you're going to go one way. If you think you're showing something, it's going to be a different conversation that that you're going towards. Um, so that there's there's an an, an intentional uh, aspect of this as well. And it's not just a matter of the words themselves. Now, when you're getting into formal logic, I think it's hard to say that formal logic is necessarily showing us something. But um, but in in conversational um, terms, there's a difference between intending to say something and intending to show something with our words. And that that's that's the tractatus. It's it's a ladder. Wittgenstein says it's a ladder. Um, he's saying we you need to understand what saying meaning is doing in order to see the world rightly, in order to be shown, in order to know what you're trying, what can be shown, what can't be shown, what can only be said, and what can't be said. And when you realize the way that the world breaks down between the two, then it's going to be a lot easier. Then it's you're going to be able to. Um, I think you're going to be able to see the world more, more or closer to rightly because you're going to kind of have things in their proper place or ha- understand uh, what things you should be asking, what things you shouldn't be asking, and how you should be asking them. And this, I think this, so we've mentioned stuff about apologetics, but I, I wonder how much it applies to so many of the disagreements that exist in everyday life where there seems to be a kind of intractable uh and argue arguments that don't get anywhere they don't seem to get anywhere and they usually just end up with name calling which is a reference to value right and it's an attempt to show yeah. you to be something which means that we're almost when we call someone an idiot or a horrible person we're in the right realm we're, but we're doing it wrongly, right? Because we're we're trying to reference value. Look, your values are off, right? Which that maybe that even hint that's a that's a corrupted hint that Wittgenstein's actually onto something that we have a natural just like I think all sin are good things that are twisted. So when we when we fall and go into ad hominem arguments and so on and so forth, maybe this is a corrupted reference to value, valuative outlooks that miss. I'm not saying we should do it, you stupid jerk. What I'm saying is that, sorry, but what I'm saying is that is that that's almost a reflection of the fact that we recognize there's a value there and we know we can't get anywhere with the argument. So what we try to do is crush the other person morally or in terms of value. Yeah, does, that, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, you're... If it's right. I mean, the name calling is... is saying the person is less valuable saying that perspective is less valuable is, is corrupt or, 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 or bad, which, um, you know, it's, it's saying don't try and see things this way. Cause it's only going to lead you down the wrong path. And yeah. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So let me, let me ask you, this, this is going to get a little bit weird. Uh, we need to we need to come to sort of an end. You probably have you probably have a lot better and more interesting and 
important things to say, but I have a weird question to ask you. Fair enough. So, and I don't, I don't mean this like, so, uh, Plato, again, Plato, I apologize. I don't apologize. I love Plato. <laughs> uh, Plato had a, a doctrine of the forms, people call it. And what the form is, you know, we talk about Aristotle and so forth. The form is kind of like the, the shape of things. And then he had the ultimate form. The form of forms was the good. And it was a value that he belie- believed gave shape to the very, and, and gave being to everything. And it's not hard to think that, well, I mean, that's what we mean when we talk about God. Could it be that God is the value that shapes the world? So God can never be proven, except, but God can be shown by the highest value that humans know, and that is love. And that proof about God, you're about to say something really good, or just blow me off, I'm not sure which. Proof about God then is always... it revolves around attempts to speak in such a way that shows love. Not being nice, that's not what I mean, but I mean, doctrine of the Trinity is a, is a is a way of understanding God that shows that love is essential to the very nature of all things. So it's a doctrine of love. Okay, but like, is, is God just the form of the world? Not just. That sounds terrible because what it means is, is what he is, is something you can't just say he's an object in the universe. He's another object alongside all the other objects. He's not just an, another object outside the universe. He is the value that shapes the world in which we live. Not, not the world that shapes reality itself. And therefore the proper stance toward reality is something like gratitude or something. I, I don't know. Like this is pretty fuzzy. Because I've I've never been able to quite put all this together, but you need to answer, and I need to shut up, or maybe you don't need to answer. So the short answer is yes. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> the the more extensive answer is going to get need to get into questions of uh, divine personhood and what's meant by all of that, and um, that is outside my depth as much as. I may enjoy reading John Zizioulis and uh, am incredibly shaped by him, I think. Uh, it's formed. one of those th- formed too. It's one of those things where I don't think I have enough understanding to be able to explain it very well, uh, in part because I'm not sure how much it's supposed to be explained. But the short answer is, uh, but the, I guess my longer answer comes down to. We know that God is love. And so when we are acting in love, we are reflecting God and um, and showing God. And how divine persons might be the value that form the world, I don't know how that works. But if, if there is some way that divine persons uh, are the, you know, the triune God, can be a a personal substance and also the value that shapes the world, then I'm on board with it. Yeah, see, that's the thing. When you say that, if when I say something like God is the form of the world, then it just sounds like he's a, God's a neat, a neat thing that helps us understand how we see the world and nothing more. But that, but I, I think there's a, and I do think there's a way to talk about this in detail using people like Zizioulis and Colin Gutton and some of these other people who've really focused on on the the 
the Trinity, the, the tri-personal nature of God and the way, the way that, the way that, that, that there's three persons in one God and how weird, how difficult that is, how we can't grasp it. It's something that, but it's something that can be, that can be gestured toward and, and sort of seen. And once you see it, it in the, my experience with the Trinity, learning about the Trinity, particularly when I was younger, was that this is sort of a weird idea that we have to do because there's some Bible passages that seem to suggest it, but let's just kind of ignore it because it's confusing and weird and we don't understand it. Uh, and then I read Zizioulis, read Gutton, read these other people, and I'm like, no, this is this this is the shape of Christianity itself is understood in the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation. Like, if you don't... To understand Christianity is to already have been gestured toward these ideas. So... Uh, but anyway, so I, I think that's interesting, and and it's if if that is the case, then clearly what Wittgenstein is saying, if he's right, what he's saying is is supremely important for understanding how we communicate about God to an unbelieving world, and in fact, it may be tremendously important for why we're confused about God's nature and things about God, and why the gospel has become in some ways. I don't want to say this. There's a problem in the Western world of Christianity being meaningless to, to most people, including uh, meaningless in terms of everyday life. It's a, it's a, and we've had that. We've talked about this for a long time, but when I talk to not, when I talk to unbelievers, my general understanding is they think Christianity is stupid. It's just an added thing that you're supposed to believe about magic beings. And then something about punishment and reward, which we talked about in an earlier episode about the nature of ethics, how it can't be, if it just boils down to punishment and reward, you're not talking about ethics. And so, uh, and that's in Detractatus. It could be that we've tried to boil Christianity down and make everything so, so clear and systematic that we've eradicated the meaning from it. We're not, sh- we, we show little, if anything, but we talk a lot. Like we can have all kinds of debates about predestination and human free will. I'll say no more about that. But anyway, I, I don't know. There seems to be a problem. And I'm trying, the reason why I'm saying this, I'm trying to connect it with other elements. And this all does go to the evaluative outlook issues, or issue, but maybe our whole understanding. I mean, it seems like the fundamental problem that we have is we just don't care about evaluative outlooks. All we care about is evidence, uh, hard evidence or lo- empirical evidence or logical evidence for particular beliefs we have and well, anyway, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to go off on this. Well, I, 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 let, let me say, I one of the things I appreciate about um, about Eastern Orthodoxy in particular is their emphasis on theosis, on on the, being brought into the divine relation, being brought into to the divine, to becoming a little 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 g gods kind of thing is that if that's what the end of the christian life is in participating in 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 the trinity that isn't something that's going to come down to evidence it's not going to be something that comes down to propositions it's going to be come down to who are you becoming how like how do you see the universe how do you see reality um and if if that is the case not that the evidence doesn't matter 
but it's it's a stepping stone at best. And when we put our emphasis on evidence, when we put our 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 emphasis on propositions, when we put our emphasis on that, and as opposed to what is that? How is that supposed to 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 form us? Um, we're we're gonna get hung up on saying things correctly rather than seeing things rightly. Yeah. And it's not that saying things correctly, again, that's we're, we're saying again, it's not that saying things correctly is not important. We're, I very much prefer people to be very clear about what they're saying, to connect things in a logical way when they're talking about things that can be spoken of logically. Do that. That's That's not just that's not just a nice addition. That's essential, I think, for communication. But ultimately, we're trying to gesture beyond our fingers. When I'm pointing, you can look at my finger, understand where my finger's going, but please take your gaze toward where it's aiming. Yeah. Uh, and then we can we can relate to that in some way. It's uh, so. Uh, anyway, I, I I that's clearly. From what I can understand, that's what Wittgenstein seems to be saying. His whole thing about, you know, don't read my book and then don't say anything is a little bit weird. But that's not exactly what he's saying. Right. Uh, understand the latter and then realize you have to get beyond it. Yeah. And, and you know, he, just to kind of project a, a bit farther with Wittgenstein and to push back on this idea that there's an early versus late Wittgenstein, I think there's a... Wittgenstein. Uh-oh, um, here we go. But in the investigations, philosophical investigations, the book that he had basically ready to go when he died, but he didn't want to publish it because he didn't want to have to argue with people about it. He 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 treats it as a uh, a picture album, basically, where each kind of it's not propositions; it's more of of paragraphs or or thoughts. Um, each one is to is kind of a snapshot and you're supposed to kind of get a feeling for the whole by looking at all the pictures together as opposed to um, getting hung up on on any particular picture or trying to make a connection between just two pictures or you know it's 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 they're all connected somehow and it's it's he's he's trying to get you to see things um, rather than make it necessarily a cohesive argument um, that is, is something you can follow step by step and come to a, a deductive, uh, conclusion. Yeah. If you read, if you read the Tractatus and then you go to the investigations, you know, excited to read something like the Tractatus, which I can't imagine you must be a monster if you feel that way, <laughs> but you're going to be sorely disappointed. And if yeah. you read the investigations and think that was kind of neat, I'm going to go read the Tractatus. You're going to be sorely disappointed because yes. they're complete. They're like almost opposites. Yes. In the way that they're written. One's after I would almost call it aphoristic, the the investigations. It's yeah. sort of like you know, you're like, what are you talking about? You're just kids play games. They make up rules without even talking about it. Okay. And then it goes on to something else, and you're like, what are we talking? Uh yeah, that that's a that's interesting. I'm learning stuff from you. I should pay you. <laughs> so excellent. Well, any final words? Besides the, uh, there's not an early and late Wittgenstein, just like I believe there's not an early and late Plato, <laughs> at least not in the way that they mean it. Ultimately, um, I, I keep coming back to this. I, 
we we keep coming back to this and and I mean this is kind of the theme of there's if there is a single theme of our podcast it's evaluative outlooks matter and the way that you shape your evaluative outlooks um, isn't easy it, it it requires paying a lot of attention and looking carefully and um the examined that, life yeah it, it's it's not um easy it's not um you know you're you're going to have to um to sometimes stick your neck out you're going cuz you're trying to to value things correctly and in a world that tries to tell us um, values don't exist or values are just opinions. Um, it's, it's not an, an easy thing to defend, um, or to live. And so, um, I hope that what we give you on this podcast, uh, encourages you in that, in that task, encourages you on your journey. Um, and that you, you're able to see the triune God more clearly and, and become more like Jesus. And if, if that's what we're doing, then um, this is incredibly valuable. And if not, well then ignore us maybe and find something that does, but hopefully we are, hopefully there, there is value in, in what we're doing. I would doing. say if we're not, there's something wrong with you people. Uh, <laughs> no. uh, well, we're trying to show something. We stumble uh, yeah. and fall a lot, but we're trying. And we are grateful that at least th- that you're along for the journey. Um, and tell your friends about us. Maybe, maybe, maybe they'll enjoy it too. Okay, excellent. Well, I think that's a good way to end. Uh, and for now, I'm Travis. I'm Joel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>